Hello everybody, I'm Panicky in the UK, and this is Panicky Pictures. And in this episode I'm going to be talking about some TV shows I've been watching and enjoying uh, over the last few weeks and months, mostly the last few weeks, but I'm going to be going back a little bit. Originally this was going to be uh, an episode that also ranked my BFI player watches. Um, I had a subscription to BFI player, uh, for a few months. I only actually managed to watch 14 movies on there, unfortunately. And I was going to rank those and talk about them. And I did actually record that, but it got much longer than anticipated. Um, and I didn't want to put out a super long episode. Um, and I felt like talking about these TV shows, because some of them are still airing or have just come out, uh, was kind of more time critical than uh, talking about a bunch of classic films. So I'm going to put the BFI Player One in the bank, um, maybe put that out later, uh, and I'm going to be talking about TV exclusively in this episode. Um, so I hope that some of you like watching TV. I also hope that you're getting by. Um, I know it's not uh, an easy time really for anyone at the moment, particularly I know for my uh, listeners in the US, uh, it's been a really tumultuous couple of weeks. Um, I hope that you feel a little bit more uh, stability now, uh, which of course is not to say that you should disengage from politics, and I would never uh, advise that, but nevertheless, um, I think that sometimes you need to take a little break, a little breather, uh, so you don't burn out, and I hope that you feel able to do that. I do apologise, not that I think anybody cares, but I do apologise that this uh, episode is coming out a little bit later than I originally planned, um, but it does give me a chance to talk about the third episode of WandaVision a little bit. Um, originally I was going to do this uh, last week, but things just got on top of me, so it does just mean I can talk about a little bit more of WandaVision than I would have been able to before. So, without further ado, uh, let us get into it. I want to start off by talking about some TV shows that I watched on Stars Play, uh, which is an Amazon channel that I got at the same time as I got the BFI Player channel, add-on to Prime. Uh, they were doing a deal, otherwise I couldn't afford both of them really. Um, so I, I got both of these channels for three months for a reduced rate. And I know that Amazon is evil, by the way, but, uh, you know, um, I get uh, a quite significant student discount on it. And for quite a long time, it's free for me, actually. Uh, I think they do a six-month student trial or something like that. Um, I'm holding on to it for now, um, just because... Uh, it's such a good deal, um, and I am continually reassessing um, whether my conscience will allow me to uh, continue, but you know what, all of these companies are evil, I know some more than others, but what are you going to do? Uh, anyway, so I will initially talk about uh, some of the TV shows that I've been watching on Stars Play. I don't really know, I'm not entirely sure what Stars Play's stars places uh, dealers um i think they have some shows that are uh, on hulu in the us um we don't have hulu here um obviously unless you have a vpn or whatever and i can't be bothered with that um so i think it's hulu but then certain other things as well um so it just seems to be a kind of variety of 
uh, shows that are maybe on streaming platforms in the US that we don't get over here. Stars Play just seems to kind of acquire quite a few of those. So it might be a little bit of a smorgasbord um, of uh, different places. If you're listening from the US, uh, I don't know if you can get all of these shows in one place, uh, but I'm sure that you can figure it out. Uh, you probably already know more than I do. Um, so first of all, I'm going to talk a little bit about Counterpart, which I have mentioned before on the show on one of my previous TV Talk segments. Um, but I've now completed the whole series. Um, I found the first season of the show really, really compelling, really fascinating, kind of reminded me a little bit of Fringe, um, which is just one of my all-time favourite TV shows. You know, I know people say that season four of Fringe is bad. I don't think it's bad. I mean, it's a step down, but uh, I still think it's pretty good. And I like the first season as well. You know, I think a lot of people say seasons two and three of Fringe are the good ones. I think the first season of Fringe is good. It's just setting up, you know, it's it's place setting. Um, but it's still really fun in a kind of monster of the week kind of way. Um, anyway. Uh, let's not get into that right now. Um, but counterpart anyway, um, initially I found really, really compelling. Um, you know, I think JK Simmons is great. I wasn't super familiar actually with JK Simmons work, uh, before that. Um, so it was really interesting to see him play these two very different versions of the same character. Um, but in season two, the show becomes... I think a lot less about the kind of sci-fi element and kind of leans far more into the espionage kind of Cold War analogy element of its premise. And for me, that's less interesting. And I think the other thing is that it kind of starts to move away from, well, partly to move away from Howard, which actually I think is completely valid, you know, it starts to give Olivia Williams as um, Emily a bit more to do, Um, you've got a little bit more focus on Claire Quayle, uh, played by Nazanin Bonyadi, who's going to be in the new Lord of the Rings series, Um, that's really interesting, Um, however, um, it does kind of stop focusing on Baldwin. I mean, Baldwin almost completely disappears from the narrative. Uh, She's played by, and I really apologise, I'm sure I'm going to get this wrong, uh, Sarah Sariocco. But anyway, um, Baldwin almost completely disappears from the narrative, um, which I think is a real shame because she was one of the most compelling characters in that first season. And you also have some new characters introduced, and I think that the standard of acting for some of the supporting cast in season two really drops and I can't figure out why that would be unless it's a directing issue um but it's just a real shame I mean I will say that one major um exception to that is Betty Gabriel as Naya Temple Uh, Betty Gabriel who was so great in Get Out um she's fantastic um and you know there are interesting things still going on in that second season um but I I just feel like some of what was so great about that first season is lost especially the very early promise um in the first few episodes having said that um it's just fascinating to watch a show that was made 
before the pandemic, but which is about a pandemic and how prescient it is in certain ways. Um, just totally fascinating to watch a show where people are wearing masks, uh, where there's a lot of stuff about, you know, kind of hygiene and illness and the way that a society might shift after a pandemic. And it really does reflect some of the societal shifts that I think we're already seeing. And of course, we're, you know, very much kind of in the weeds of, of the pandemic right now. And it's hard to know what the long term effects are going to be. But I think you can certainly speculate. And I apologize that we're talking about the pandemic. I know that a lot of us watch TV to escape from reality, <laughs> not exclusively, but certainly escapism is uh, a big part of why we why we watch TV and movies. Um, and uh, here we are talking about uh, the pandemic, but nevertheless, um, it is it is really really interesting to see a take on how a pandemic might affect a society that was made prior to the to our current pandemic, and yet. Um, feels very very prescient in many ways um so i would still think that it's worth watching the second season of counterparts but it you just have to anticipate that it is at least for me um a little bit of a step down from the first season uh so that's counterpart um a show that i initially really loved and and felt um was kind of doing something that I hadn't seen being done since Fringe and ended up somewhat disappointing me, but still being really interesting. Okay, next I want to go on to talk about Four Weddings and a Funeral, the reboot, uh, which I believe was a, a Hulu show. Um, I'm not going to talk about this a huge amount because I didn't finish it, um, and I think I, I spoke about this uh, again on my uh, previous TV Talk segment. But, um, yeah, I... I started it and I thought, oh man, you know, the central performances are really good, I find these characters charming, but I just, maybe it was because, you know, as a, as an English, or mostly English person, um, you know, I, I just didn't really find, I didn't find some of the English characters very authentic, I suppose. Um, having said that, I mean, I don't live in London, I'm not from London, I try not to go to London if I can help it, I'm not a fan. So it might be that there's a kind of specificity to those characters that is specifically London um, that I just wouldn't pick up on. But I kind of find that unlikely given that it's, um, you know, obviously written by uh, an American um, or I think primarily written by Mindy Kaling. Um, having said that, you know, I do think that the um, the depiction of the Indian family uh, is a lot sort of more interesting, um, but yeah, I, it, it just didn't capture me, uh, as much as I hoped it would, despite how much I liked the cast and certain elements of it, uh, and I ended up giving up, but, um, I did watch the High Fidelity reboot, there are certain comparisons to be made here, right, I mean, Obviously, Four Weddings and a Funeral, the original movie, is much more of a kind of traditional or conventional romantic comedy than High Fidelity was, uh, which was much more kind of cynical and maybe a little bit of a deconstruction of romance in some ways. But I think it's fair to call them both romantic comedies, um, both of them having male protagonists and male writers, generally a male creative team, rebooted by women 
uh, with uh, a mixed race woman uh, as the central character. So there are definitely comparisons to be made there, right? I mean, I think they're very different shows, but, you know, just kind of on paper, uh, you can you can see how that there's some crossover there. And I would say that for me, when I first started watching High Fidelity, I found it perfectly sort of fun and diverting, but really nothing that special. There were certain things that seemed kind of obvious about it. Um, you know, there's a there's a revelation quite late um, in the season, which reminded me a little bit of Fleabag. And I certainly think that there are comparisons to be made here with Fleabag. You know, you've got this kind of um, dysfunctional female character at the centre of it who addresses the camera directly, breaking the fourth wall. Um, so, you know, I definitely think there are comparisons to be made. Um, I guess Fleabag on the surface is much less about romantic relationships, but I actually think in some ways High Fidelity ends up uh, kind of prioritising familial and platonic relationships more than Fleabag actually does in kind of an interesting way. Because I think that ultimately Fleabag does end up being about romance. And particularly, you know, I mean, spoilers for Fleabag. I'm, I'm sure that I was the last person on the planet to finish watching it. Because um, I was much later to it than most people were. Uh, but, you know, the, in the final episode of Fleabag, um, Fleabag's sister uh, says the only person I'd run through an airport for is you. Which kind of seems like a de deconstruction of a of a rom-com trope, right? But then she leaves to run through an airport for a guy. So it kind of ends up undercutting that message, I think. Whereas here in High Fidelity, yes, the focus is on romantic relationships, but you do also see the development of these friendships and this kind of solidarity, I think, between women and, you know, how, how a family starts to form um, so I, I think that High Fidelity is actually doing something slightly more interesting than it might initially appear on the face of it. Um, I also really like, I mean, obviously Zoe Kravitz is great. I would probably say I mostly know her from Big Little Lies, uh, which I, I, I really enjoyed the first season of Big Little Lies, and then I thought it pretty much kind of undid all of its good work in the second season. But yeah, so I mean, that was mostly where I knew Zoe Kravitz from, and I thought she was good in that, but didn't get a huge amount to do, really. You know, in the first season, she's kind of an antagonist, almost, or at least presented that way as a kind of, or, you know, like a love rival or a kind of object of um, envy for the kind of point of view characters. And then in the second season, she's so depressed, and I think that she plays depression really well but it does just mean that that character doesn't have a huge amount of agency I suppose and I say that as somebody who has and still does suffer from depression so um you know I say that with a certain level of kind of self-awareness about how how depression can affect you um so anyway I think Zoe Kravitz is great I really like uh Jake Lacey um in this show and, you know, I think the supporting cast is pretty good on the whole as well. But yeah, High Fidelity really won me over after initially kind of thinking, okay, you know, this is fun, but I feel like I've kind of seen it all before. And, uh, you know, it, did this show really need to happen? 
Uh, it did end up really winning me over, especially in the episode Me Time, which I found incredibly moving. Uh, the one thing I would say about High Fidelity, and again, you know, saying this kind of as a queer person, um, so Rob um, is, Rob is the Zoe Kravitz character, uh, the kind of uh, new take on the character who's played by John Cusack in the original adaptation of the novel. So she's bisexual, but she only has one uh, woman partner, and it's a partner that she had in college. And obviously, you know, that does reflect some bisexual people's experience, absolutely, and that's completely valid. But I do also worry that it's playing into certain stereotypes about bisexuality, about... Uh, especially about bisexual women, that, um, you know, oh, it's an experimental thing in college, or, you know, they're mostly attracted to men, but just every so often dabble with women. Um, and that is absolutely true for some bisexual people in real life, and not to invalidate that, but at the same time, I think that you have to acknowledge that that reflects a stereotype. So you just have to kind of think critically about how you are portraying bisexuality when you write a bisexual character. Even though, yes, that is authentic to some people's experience, you also have to ask yourself whether you are playing into certain harmful stereotypes. And I think that the portrayal of... Uh, of Rob's bisexuality does uh, risk doing that. And I, I suppose I also can't help but wonder whether they would have made, if they had rebooted High Fidelity with a male protagonist, would they have made that male protagonist bisexual? And I doubt it. And obviously they didn't do that, but it just kind of feels like bisexuality in women seems to be something that people find a lot easier to portray than bisexuality in men. Um, you know, I think that that potentially is starting to change a little bit, but I think that, you know, bisexual men are still very much erased. Um, and, you know, again, in this show, you have a male character who dates Rob and then comes out as gay. Um, and again, that's totally authentic to a lot of people's experience, but I just wonder if it would have been a little bit more interesting if you had a male character who dated Rob um, and then came out as bi, you know? It's just, it's just about thinking about what bisexual representation do we already have? Are you serving a need or are you just playing into something that has become a cliche at this point? So... I have mixed feelings about that, but on the whole, I actually really liked High Fidelity. Um, much more than I expected to, uh, even in the first few episodes. Um, it just uh, really ended up moving me. Alright, let's move on. Uh, I watched the entire first season of Castle Rock, uh, which ran for two seasons. It's essentially... It's an anthology show with an original story which uh, takes place in the setting of Castle Rock, which is a setting that Stephen King created and has returned to several times uh, in his writing. And it also uses some of King's 
characters uh, and ideas, but tells an original story. So I did not watch the second season, but I did watch the first season. Obviously, it's an anthology show, so they're kind of standalone narratives each season. Um, Now, the first season has a really amazing cast. Um, So you've got Andre Holland from Moonlight um, in uh, the central role. And then you also have um, some people who have been in other Stephen King projects. So you have Sissy Spacek, um, you have uh, Bill Skarsgård, um, Melanie Linsky's in it. I mean, I just think she's absolutely great. You've got got Jane Levy uh, in a smaller role. So, you know, a, a really fantastic cast. And when I first started watching this show, I was really impressed, you know. Uh, I thought the ensemble was great, I thought the production design was really beautiful, um, the story was intriguing. I think Bill Skarsgård in particular is doing something really, really interesting in his performance. Um, I think he's great, but I mean, everybody, everybody's really good in it. And for the first few episodes, I thought the writing was really, really strong. And then towards the middle of the season, there were a couple of things that started to bug me a little bit, okay? So... There was a a scene at a funeral that just had a particular shot that I find incredibly cliched and I just thought, oh, that's lazy, you know? Um, And then there was something else where they introduced this new element and I just thought, why wouldn't you tease that right from the very beginning rather than introduce it mid-season and then have it pay off almost immediately only then, as it turned out, for that plot thread to kind of disappear. Um, So it it started to feel like it was just kind of unravelling a little bit. But I stuck with it, um, and I felt, okay, you know, after those couple of mid-season episodes that I wasn't so sure about, um, there were a couple of really good, really interesting episodes... Uh, The episode The Queen has uh, rightly kind of been commended, as has Sissy Spacek's uh, performance in it um, as, you know, being this kind of really interesting depiction of dementia. Um, And then there's also another episode, Henry Diva, which I think is really good. And then that final episode and actually I'm looking on uh, IMDB right now and it does have by quite a long way the lowest rating um, of um, of the whole season on IMDB it's got seven which I still think is a little bit high to be honest um, but I mean uh, the queen for example has 9.1 um, most of these episodes have a score of more than eight. Uh, with uh, Filter, uh, which is the sixth episode, which is, as I said, mid-season, uh, another one of the um, the lower-rated ones. So it doesn't seem like I'm alone in thinking that this uh, final episode was a real letdown, and I really did. I mean, uh, again, you know, I don't want to spoil things, but I think that Okay, the, the, the central character, Henry Diva, played by Andre Holland, is a death row lawyer uh, who's really passionate about fair trial, habeas corpus, and, you know, preventing wrongful imprisonment. And then the show does something in the final episode 
which seems to completely betray those ideals in a way that I just found quite upsetting actually to be honest um I mean I'm not I'm not somebody who demands that media be be moral you know I think that there's there's a kind of new Victorianism at work at the moment where people are kind of like you know if a piece of media uh, doesn't sort of comply to my moral standards then it's trash or you know whatever I I, I think that I, I think that demanding moralism from art is misguided. I do think that. But at the same time, I really can't get on board with the way that this show ends up wrapping up its story. Um, I just think that it's this incredibly kind of simplistic and reprehensible depiction of how evil functions Um and I, I just really, really couldn't get along with it. Um, so, so it's kind of the inverse to High Fidelity, I guess, in the sense that it was a show that started really strong and then massively disappointed me, whereas High Fidelity was a show um, that I felt started off, you know, all right, um, and then ended up really impressing me. And Counterpart, I guess, was somewhere in the middle. Started off really strong, ended up disappointing me a little bit. Um, but I would now like to move on to talking about my absolute favourite show uh, that I saw on Stars Play, uh, and a show that didn't end up disappointing me at all. And that show is a little show called Doom Patrol. Uh, I just love this show. Um, I'm somebody who in the past has been very much a kind of... A Marvel good, DC bad person, and I'm a little bit embarrassed now about that because I think it's childish, and um, I uh, I completely rescind that. Um, not that I'm gonna suddenly start getting into the DC movies or anything; they don't really um, have hold any interest for me. But on the TV side, I think actually DC seems to be doing some really really interesting stuff. I would certainly like to watch uh, Batwoman at some point when I get around to it and the same with the Harley Quinn cartoon I know there was all that stuff the Arrowverse and everything which I think was that on the CW um that seemed like less my speed that seemed to be maybe um aimed at a younger audience um and it didn't seem super interesting to me um Doom Patrol on the other hand I just absolutely love basically it's a dysfunctional superhero team, uh, headed up by Timothy Dalton. I, I'm not a Bond fan at all, so I didn't really know Timothy Dalton from anything in particular. But I love him in this. It's really funny because, of course, he's Welsh and he has a Welsh accent. He's speaking with a Welsh accent throughout. But then they make him from London. Because, uh, <laughs> obviously, the American audience can't tell the difference but it is very funny um you know as an English person watching it just kind of like I'm sorry what part of London is he from <laughs> um but uh but he's great um and uh in the rest of the cast you have Brendan Fraser uh and it's so great to well sometimes see him mostly hear him back on on our screens Matt Bomer who I, I really like Matt Bomer, actually. 
you know, I think he makes really interesting choices. I mean, he was in the third season of The Sinner, which I thought was just great. And obviously, you know, he's a very attractive guy. You know, he's very classically handsome. And I think it would be easy for him to take less sort of challenging and complex roles and just to kind of play a pretty boy. And it seems like he chooses not to do that on the whole. Um, and I respect that a lot. Um, you've got April Bowlby, who I love. Um, she was in a show. Uh, it was called Drop Dead Diva. And I have to admit, I went through a phase uh, where I was pretty into it. I think it was when I was still at university um, that this show was on. And I mean, it it carried on a, a little while after I graduated too. Um, but I think it was... It was uh, when I was at university that I was watching it. She also had a small role in How I Met Your Mother as well, but I mostly know her from Drop Dead Diva. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but I think she's great in this. Um, and then you've got Diane Guerrero, um, who was in um, Orange is the New Black. I mean, I wasn't a big fan of that show, again, bisexual representation. I just thought it was awful for that um obviously it was good in other ways um but you know i just couldn't quite get past how bad it was on that front uh and you got joe van wade playing cyborg who kind of he's one of the less dysfunctional i mean still pretty dysfunctional but one of the less dysfunctional um members of the of the group uh and then also i think it's really important to mention riley shanahan and matthew zuck who are doing the um physical performances for Robot Man, who's voiced by Brendan Fraser, and Negative Man, who's voiced by Matt Bomer. Brendan Fraser and Matt Bomer do play those characters on screen in certain flashback scenes and very occasionally. So for example, when Negative Man, who usually wears bandages, when he takes his bandages off, it is Matt Bomer in makeup who is playing that character. But for the most part, it is Matthew Zook um, who's performing as Negative Man. And um, I have to say, I think Matthew Zook is kind of the dark horse of the show because the physical performance as Negative Man is so affecting. Um, just the the way that he kind of expresses uh, emotion through his body. Um, I, I don't think, honestly, don't think the show would be uh, what it is um, without Matthew Zook. Uh, you've also got Alan Tudyk as Mr. Nobody in the uh, first season. Um, you know, I mean, obviously people really like him. Um, I get it. I mean, I was never the biggest Firefly fan. I can kind of take him or leave him. I, I feel like that character, it kind of feels like they're trying to do this kind of Deadpool-style breaking of the fourth wall meta stuff with him which I feel is less successful than some of the other stuff that they do. Um, it just doesn't feel like his comments are all that incisive, I think. So, you know, I'm less in love uh, with uh, with that element of the show. Uh, but, oh, also Abby Monterey, who comes in in the uh, second season as Dorothy, also great. I think really fantastic, actually. I mean, she's young, but she's not a child actor, um, but she's playing a child and does it really brilliantly. Um, I mean, sometimes her accent is a little bit off, but then again, she's playing a character who was born in Canada, 
partially raised in England and then came back to America. So it's kind of fine that her accent is all over the place. Like, doesn't... It's fine. Um, I mean, it is all over the place, but, you know, there is a certain level of justification for that within the show as well. And I, I just... I just love this show. I think that it has so much fun with some of its high concept elements. But I think also... In terms of queer representation, it's doing something so interesting. Because yes, with Larry Trainer, Negative Man, uh, voiced by Matt Bomer and performed by Matthew Zook, um, you have this kind of, I think, quite conventional queer story of somebody who is wrestling with their sexuality and tortured by guilt and doubt and all of this stuff. And, you know, that's fine. But we've seen that before. But then with Danny the Street, you have this narrative of just queer joy and inclusivity and community and togetherness that completely blew me away. I don't know if I've ever seen anything like that on TV before. Um, There's just something so incredibly warm and joyous about it. Um, It just really, really captured me. And, you know, it's really clever as well about certain other things like um sexual coercion you know um i think particularly in the uh final episode of the second season it was originally going to be a 10th episode i think but because of covid they had to wrap early um so it's episode nine of season two some really interesting stuff about sexual coercion and how it functions like quite insidiously there's also Um, some really interesting stuff about people who go into the military because it's the only way they see out of poverty and how complicated that is to be, you know, a veteran who joined the military not for any real ideological reason but just because, you know, it seemed like a way out of poverty and then gets injured and comes back and is wrestling with what happened to them but also with the things that they have done and who they are now wrestling with guilt I mean that's something that is quite strong throughout the show in general is people who are kind of wrestling with guilt and with their past actions and with whether they're always going to be trapped by what's happened to them in the past or whether they can get past that and reinvent themselves And in some cases that's to do with personal guilt and in some cases it's to do with trauma or both. You know, often those things go hand in hand. Um, I think that the show is is just really, really interesting about that. Um, And there is also another... Uh, so I, I would say probably two of my favourite episodes, one of them is Danny Patrol in season one where you first meet Danny the Street, the genderqueer sentient streets, and... Um, in season two sex patrol which just has everything i think it's just fantastic and that is another um danny episode as well um and then as i say the final um episode of season two but actually there are so many great episodes the season two opener where everybody's miniature is just such a great high concept episode there's uh there's another episode where they go into jane's subconscious um, there's, there's just so much great high concept stuff going on in this show. I know that I'm completely, 
uh, raving, uh, but I can't help it. I just think it's great, um, and I really do recommend it, um, especially uh, for superhero fans, but I think even for non-superhero fans, to be honest. I think there's something to enjoy uh, for most people. I mean, not everybody. I won't say everybody, but probably for most people who listen to this podcast. Uh, so that is everything, pretty much all the TV shows that I watched on Stars Play. Uh, so let's let's rank them, shall we? So I think at the very bottom, you've got Four Weddings and a Funeral, which I didn't even manage to finish. Then you've got Castle Rock, which I thought started off strong and then was quite disappointing. Probably in the middle, I would put Counterpart, even though I loved the first season so much, I did just think that it went off the rails. Not went off the rails, no. Season two was still pretty decent but it just lost something in season two. Or maybe, okay, let's say Counterpart and High Fidelity joint second place. Let's say that. I did really like High Fidelity, but that was something that really kind of built for me. And, you know, when I first started watching it, I wouldn't have imagined um, that I would end up liking it as much as I did. Um, And at the very tippity top, you've got Doom Patrol. Um, Look, I... I can understand people having certain criticisms of this show. Um, it's goofy, you know, maybe it doesn't always get everything right, but it just, it just, I don't know, it just ticks all the boxes for me. I just adore it. Um, so that's absolutely my number one recommendation is Doom Patrol. All right, so let's move on from stuff on Stars Play and uh, go to some stuff that is a little bit more current. Um, So first of all, I would like to talk about Disenchantment, uh, the third season or the third part as it's styled on Netflix um, came out, it was um, the Friday before the one just gone, last Friday? I don't know, that always confuses me, it's like is last the one that's just gone or is it the one before that? Anyway, so it was Friday the 15th anyway if I'm not mistaken, so it's kind of a week and a half ago getting on for... Uh, now. Um, I was hoping to record this a little bit closer to it dropping, but uh, yeah, you know, things got on top of me. Uh, Anyway, I... (sighs) The thing for me with Disenchantment, I really enjoy it. I really enjoy it while I'm watching it, but then I just completely forget it exists until there's a new season coming up. Uh, And then I'm kind of like, oh yeah, I'll watch that. Um, But I can't remember what happened at all previously. So I saw somebody on Twitter refer to it as the okayest thing ever, and I think there is something to that. It's certainly not anything like The Simpsons at its height or Futurama. And I also think that sometimes it doesn't make the most of its fantasy setting. I mean, certainly in um, the third part, and I think quite a lot in the second part as well, there's a lot of emphasis on uh, Steamland, which is this kind of steampunk setting. I personally am not that big into steampunk, Um, I kind of like, I like futuristic sci-fi and I like fantasy, but for me, steampunk, I guess it's just the kind of Victoriana thing, it doesn't capture my imagination as much, although I will say, you know, I do quite enjoy some of those um, Philip Pullman, Victoriana type, um, the Sally Lockhart series and everything, but I never enjoyed those as much as his Dark Materials, so I really do prefer um, you know, more of a fantasy setting, which was, of course, the original setting 
uh, of Disenchantment. And then it just kind of, it seemed like the the showrunners got sick of that, I don't know. And I think the other problem maybe that I have with it is that um, it is very, very serialised. So whereas The Simpsons is entirely episodic, not serialised at all, basically no continuity except for the occasional thing like a character death um, or certain relationships, basically there's no continuity in The Simpsons. Um, Disenchantment is very, very continuity driven. And then you have Futurama, which is right in the middle. And for me, that's kind of the sweet spot. The thing I like about Futurama is that the episodes tend to stand alone really well but there's also an arc for the characters and you can see relationship development in quite a satisfying way. So Futurama is kind of just right for me. The Simpsons, I mean, obviously I love The Simpsons. I don't have a problem with the fact that it's episodic, but I guess after a certain number of seasons, the lack of continuity began to... I mean, you know, this is the uh, trouble that everybody had with the principal and the pauper, right? Is that there were no consequences for anything, you know, you could just do whatever crazy thing you wanted and it would immediately revert to the status quo and never be mentioned again or only in passing. And that I think was when The Simpsons started to feel like it was jumping the shark a little bit. So that kind of episodic thing for The Simpsons worked for a long time, but it hit a point of diminishing returns. And I think Disenchantment is at the other end of the spectrum where it is just incredibly plot driven. Um, and so you do need those recaps that Netflix gives you, or you need to watch uh, the previous seasons, um, which is fine, you know, because they're fun, they're diverting, but I don't know if it's worth investing that much time in, frankly. Um, I don't think it's quite good enough. Uh, much as I enjoy it, much as I think the vocal performances are really good, um, Meredith Hagner is in this season as a mermaid called Mora, and... The episode that kind of centres around her, I think, is The Standout. Um, I think that's called Last Splash. And I want to say it's uh, episode six or seven. I could be wrong about that. Anyway, you know, I think she's great. I really like Meredith Hagner. She's uh, from... The, well, the thing that I know her from is Search Party, which I really like. Um, a really good show that sometimes goes under the radar, unfortunately. So, yeah, so I, I love the performances... I like the setting, there's plenty about it for me to enjoy, but it just never really ends up sticking in my mind, unfortunately. So it's certainly something that I'm going to carry on watching, I'm going to watch part four when it comes out, but it's not something that is really going to live on in my imagination in the meantime. Alright, uh, moving on. Uh, I want to talk about All Creatures Great and Small, uh, which I believe premiered on PBS a couple of weeks ago, maybe a little bit longer than that, but it had come out in the UK um, a while ago. So I believe that it started airing on Channel 5 in the UK back in September, um, and I was completely unaware of this. Um, I mean, I don't have a TV license, so I only watch stuff on streaming services anyway, and it very rarely occurs to me to check what's on Channel 5. Um, Channel 5 are mostly known, for my international listeners who may not know this, Channel 5 is mostly known for imports and for kind of trashy, like, shock docs and reality TV, essentially. That's its reputation. And there's not a lot on there that I'm really going to be that interested in. For a while, um, 
they did have the magicians um so i would watch it on there on the my five app but then when i moved um magicians also moved to amazon prime um and i just never downloaded uh my five onto my playstation when i moved here because i there just wasn't anything on there that i was really interested in or so I thought. Um, but I have now re-downloaded it so that I could watch All Creatures Great and Small, which I think is the first even semi-prestige original drama I can think of that Channel 5 has made. Um, and the, the reason I started watching it, actually, I follow Samuel West on Twitter, um, who is an actor. I first became aware of him 15 years ago. Uh, I went to see him. It was a six-form trip uh, for the uh, drama students. <laughs> And we went to see his production at the Sheffield Crucible of Much Do About Nothing. He gave a little talk um, beforehand for our benefit. He was really lovely. He was great in the show. So I've kind of been a fan of his ever since. I follow him on Twitter and have for a while. And he tweeted about All Creatures Great and Small premiering on PBS. I don't know if he tweeted about it when it first aired on Channel 5. I wasn't aware of it coming out at all. Um, so I don't know if he was embarrassed that he had something on Channel 5 or if I just missed it. Uh, but anyway, I only just found out about it pretty recently. And I thought I'd give it a shot. Um, Alan Seppamore, I think, actually gave it a really good write-up in Rolling Stone. I like Alan Seppamore. I've been following his uh, TV reviews for many years, um, back from the community days. Uh, we were both big into community, uh, back then. And, you know, still am. And um, he basically said that, you know, it was kind of like a bomb for these troubled times and that it was, you know, gentle, low stakes drama and not anxiety inducing, etc, etc. And I have to say, although I really like the show, I have to completely disagree with Alan Seppamore on that because... For me, the stakes could not be higher. I mean, a lot of the time this is about whether an animal lives or dies. It's about whether, like, a working class person on the cusp of poverty is going to lose their livelihood, you know, whether they're going to be able to afford food and shelter for their family. I mean, those are high stakes, in my opinion. And I think it's really interesting. I think some of the creative team on the show is shared with Downton Abbey, which... I mean, I watched the first season, maybe even first two seasons of Downton Abbey when they came out, um, but I went off it pretty quickly, and since then I've just started to feel a little bit queasy about, I guess, the fact that most UK exports, when it comes to drama, that really seem to do well overseas, tend to be very focused on the aristocracy, and I know that Downton Abbey also had storylines that kind of focused on the servants, but it was all very much about justifying the existence of the aristocracy and how, you know, it's a mutually beneficial arrangement and they provide jobs for all of these people, you know? Um, a very kind of rosy-tinted view of the role of the aristocracy in society. Um, I haven't personally watched The Crown for the reason that I just have this kind of ideological opposition, I suppose, to this fetishization of royalty and of our aristocracy. And I know, I mean, disenchantment is about a princess, but I kind of feel like that's a slightly different thing. So I've heard that The Crown is great, I'm sure that it is great, but I just can't personally bring myself to watch it. Um, so what's really nice for me about All Creatures Great and Small is that it has that same kind of sense of nostalgia that you get in Downton Abbey, 
but it has two advantages, one of which is that I think that its class politics are much closer to mine, it's much less interested in the aristocracy, it sees the aristocracy much less as being this kind of force for good in society, it's much more interested in, you know, working people. And the other advantage I think it has over Downton Abbey is that it's based on uh, source material, whereas Downton Abbey was kind of free to bring in a lot of very soapy elements and become very melodramatic and go off the rails. I think that All Creatures Great and Small, because it is based on this source material that, you know, James Harriet wrote over a number of years, um, there are kind of guardrails there to prevent it from just really getting out of control in the way that I felt Downton Abbey did. I mean, occasionally I would catch an episode of Downton Abbey after I stopped watching because my mother was a fan. And, you know, I mean, a guy shows up and he's covered in bandages and they don't know if he's the heir to this or if he's actually that. I mean, it's so soap opera, right? I mean, you know, I get it. If you're invested, you're invested. But... Uh, it did just feel like it all got very ridiculous. And I don't think that All Creatures Great and Small is going to. I really like the cast. I like Samuel West, as I've said. Um, I think Anna Maidley is absolutely great as well um, as the housekeeper. I think she's doing fantastic work. And the whole ensemble, I think, is is really good. Um, I think that although, in general, it is very white and... Um, I mean, on the one hand, you know, that is kind of authentic. On the other hand, you know, why do we keep telling these overwhelmingly white stories? But when it does include characters who belong to ethnic minorities, I think it does it in an interesting way. So it doesn't just do colorblind casting, which I always sort of have mixed feelings about. On the one hand, I think, you know, I, I think it's kind of a stopgap measure. I think that we should be telling more stories that are authentically those of black and ethnic minority people rather than just telling white stories that happen to have black and minority ethnic actors in them. So that's my two cents. Obviously I'm, you know, willing to hear other opinions and I have heard other opinions and I, you know, get it, but that's my take. So I think that what All Creatures Great and Small does, which I think is quite interesting, although it does tend to be very white, when there are characters of colour, they you know, their race isn't incidental, it's actually kind of thoughtfully written about, and I appreciate that. Um, and also, you know, the fact that there are disabled characters, um, there's, uh, there's a child with Down syndrome, it's never really remarked on, but he's just kind of part of that world. Um, and of course, you know, people with disabilities are part of the world, <laughs> they're part of society, and often that's uh, not really acknowledged, I think, particularly in something like this, which is this kind of cosy Sunday afternoon drama. Um, sometimes disability can kind of be erased from that kind of milieu, and, and I like the fact that it is inclusive to people with disabilities. Um, it's not perfect. Um, for me, I think the romance is one of the weaker elements. Um, I feel like maybe... Maybe it needs a little bit more time to develop. Um, at the moment, there have been a few sort of significant glances and the odd conversation, but not much more than that. And it's difficult for me to really feel that invested, especially as the love interest appears to be basically the 
only single woman who is age appropriate so um, until the very near the end of the series so it kind of feels like there's a sense of tedious inevitability about this relationship rather than rather than really feeling that these two people are meant to be together i just kind of feel like by default they're going to end up together because you haven't introduced any other kind of suitable female characters who could be love interests until very late on and even then they you know don't get a lot of development um but you know i I think that the character herself is good and you know it's a minor quibble so i don't know how well this show is doing uh, in america i know that pbs is um not necessarily one that rakes in the viewers, but uh, I hope a few people are out there watching anyway. Um, I definitely think it's something that deserves a look, especially in these times of high anxiety, which don't really look like they're going to be ending anytime soon. Um, it is, although I, as I said, um, you know, the stakes for me are quite high. At the same time, you know, there is there is something quite soothing about sort of decent people going around being decent. Um, and uh, I certainly appreciate it on that level. All right, let's wrap up with WandaVision, uh, the show that everybody is talking about. And because I ended up recording this a little bit later than I initially planned, it does mean that I can talk about the third episode rather than just the first two episodes. Uh, which is good because I think that the third episode gave me a slightly different perspective on the show. After the first two episodes I really wasn't very impressed. Um, I'm not super familiar with sort of classic US sitcoms but I have seen a fair amount of Bewitched. I've never seen the Dick Van Dyke show, I've never seen I Love Lucy except clips. Um, but I, I've seen, you know, I've, I've seen quite a few episodes of Bewitched. I'm sort of familiar with the concept of that. And to me, I suppose I just felt that WandaVision really wasn't very funny at all. I felt like it needed more jokes. Um, I really liked what Elizabeth Olsen was doing, but I wasn't really sure so much about Paul Bettany's performance choices. Um, so it just kind of felt like and not very successful pastiche of these classic sitcoms that I am not even that familiar with anyway. Um, and it just didn't really work for me. I, you know, I quite enjoyed the kind of intrusion of these sort of sinister elements, but not to the point where I found it, you know, incredibly shocking or anything, because I knew going in that this was going to be based on the kind of House of M uh, storyline uh, in the comics, and also a little bit, I think, on uh, Tom King's run on The Vision, um, which I'm much more familiar with. Um, I read The Vision. I I never read House of M, but I'm kind of, I, I know the basic idea behind it, and it very much feels like this is playing with that. So it's not really anything that should be new. And I think even if you're purely a fan of the MCU and not of the comics, this kind of thing has been done before, um especially I think on sort of um, long-running fantasy and sci-fi shows, there'll very often be an episode like this, uh, you know, and you know, maybe it's a standalone episode, but it's basically the same conceit. I mean, Sanctuary is one that I can think of. I think Buffy did this a couple of times, um, and I'm, I'm absolutely sure that there are others. I mean, I think Star Trek has done this kind of thing numerous times as well. 
Um, I think particularly there's an episode of TNG that's kind of along these lines. So it's not this kind of groundbreaking idea, and aesthetically it's not that groundbreaking either. I mean, I feel like there it owes a big debt to Pleasantville. I know a lot of people are saying David Lynch, and that's really just silly, but you know, maybe there's a comparison to be made with something like Greener Grass from a couple of years ago, which shared the slightly Lynchian feel and had that same kind of um, uh, suburban uh, mystery, um, you know, what lies under the surface kind of vibe to it. So, you know, I feel like people are giving this credit for being a lot more kind of innovative than it actually is. It's based on storylines from the comics, it's a conceit that has been done before, if not exactly in this way, um, and the pastiche elements weren't really coming off for me. However, um, I do think that episode three worked better for me. Um, I mean, I felt like it was kind of opening out a little bit, starting to really delve into the mystery rather than being purely this pastiche uh, with just, you know, a couple of elements where you're like, oh, something strange is going on, as if I didn't already know that going in, you know. I was also uh, more on board with Bettany's performance choices in that episode, and I'm also really intrigued by what is going to happen with Tayana Paris. Um, I will say that she was one of my favourite things about If Beale Street Could Talk, along with uh, Regina King and Pedro Pascal and the very powerful scene that they had between them. But she was also somebody who made a um, kind of uh, huge impression on me while watching that film. I think she's a great choice for the character that she has been cast as. I don't know if I should is that a spoiler or does everybody know that already? I won't say it out loud, but I think most of us know uh, what we're uh, talking about. But um, but I think she's a great choice. Um, I really like what she's doing. And, you know, I'm intrigued by what's going on with Catherine Hahn. Um, I love Catherine Hahn, always have. Um, maybe wish that she had a little bit more to do here, but it seems as though that is going to uh, start happening. And, yeah, I, um, I'm on board. Um, I'm not sure that I'm going to continue my Disney Plus subscription, um, long enough to keep watching this week by week as it comes out, but at some point I will be, uh, getting another month and, um, you know, I may just binge it all at that point if it's already all dropped. Um... I'm not as enthusiastic about it as I think that some people are, but I'm not as down on it as I would have been after the initial two episodes either. And I think it's always worth giving shows a chance beyond, you know, those first couple of episodes. I remember when BoJack Horseman came out, when it very, very first came out, and a lot of reviews, um, the critics had only been given screeners for the first half of the first season, and there were some quite lukewarm reviews of it, and it was only as the second half of the season came out and people realised that it was sort of deepening and complicating itself, that people realised that it was actually doing something much more interesting than they initially thought. Um, so I think it's always worth giving 
shows if you feel like they have a certain amount of potential a little bit of a chance to develop and deepen and I'm very willing to do that with WandaVision even if I felt like it got off to a slightly shaky start um all right let's leave it at that um thank you so much for listening if indeed you did and you can always follow me at panicky pictures on twitter panicky in the uk on letterboxd i'll stick my link tree down in the description so you can find me at some point maybe i'll make an email address so people can get in touch with me uh who aren't on twitter or letterboxd uh but uh no promises we'll see what happens all right cheers guys have a good one